We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much. So many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Ave É uma bosta. Hey, welcome everybody back. Steve with Sunset Fidelity. I'm coming at you on the May Day, May the 1st, with our boy Charles Colon, which he's got a little facial uh, accessory to done for us today well you know here in austria if you're going to the market or anything like that you've got to wear a face mask and i figured that in the interests of not infecting uh your public i might wear one you know to keep them safe from the oh forget it <laughs> i'm not gonna even bother trying you guys are gonna have to just risk your lives the way i do <laughs> I got my i'm surprised you don't have a the Habsburg flag on that or anything. <laughs> no, no, that that would be too much. Although the Archduke Carl had the virus and recovered, the heir to the throne, uh -huh. and his son uh, is in the army right now and is busy keeping us well fed. Will so, that part of the story be in the book you're coming out with? Yes, yes, indeed, from 10 books. You may be familiar with the company. Heard of them once or twice. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, they're... Uh, I've still got some last-minute stuff I have to do, and I've got to. When I'm uh, finished with this afternoon's amusements, I've got to uh, get on to your colleague in New Hampshire. But before then, we'll do this. And this we're talking about will be the counter-revolution during the revolution of the 1960s. If you're going to San Francisco... Better wear more than a mask now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, if you're of a certain age, and I am just at the, at the tail end of it, then your youth was brought up, you, were, you saw... All these people wearing funny clothing and doing strange, peculiar things. Uh, I wrote a I wrote an article on the town of Glastonbury in England on the revival of monastic uh, life in Glastonbury mm -hmm. for the Catholic Herald. It'll be coming out this coming month. But what was funny about it was that Glastonbury has several different sides to it. It was a great Catholic shrine, uh, but it has all sorts of esoteric things connected to it like Sedona or Mount Shasta in the United States and just as those places attracted a lot of hippies so too did Glastonbury and the result was uh, Britain's answer to Woodstock Glastonbury Fair 
Wow. Now, it would have been 50 years old this year. This was going to be their 50th anniversary uh, mm -hmm. production, but it was uh, canceled due to the, the virus. But a few weeks ago, to prepare myself for writing the article, uh, I, I had seen Woodstock when it came out. Don't ask me what my parents were doing, allowing their 10-year-old son to watch Woodstock, but they, they didn't, didn't do it. They were friends of theirs. But at any rate, I saw Woodstock when it came out. Glastonbury Fair, the movie, is sort of the British equivalent, and I saw it a few weeks ago. I never had done it before. Mm -hmm. And as I saw all these naked people were all rolling around in the mud, I thought, and those are the people that are ruling us now. Yep. Is a comforting thought. Ah. Their ethos. They feel all warm it, and fuzzy inside. Yeah, or perhaps slightly nauseous. But whatever the case, <laughs> uh, that ethos is what rules the world today. So how'd that come uh, to be? Well, that's a very, very good question. And I suppose we have to go back in time. I need graphics. To, you know, like the Cirque Twilight Zone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Right. <laughs> exactly. Well, I mean, there, there were several things that were going on at the same time. The first is that a uh, generation uh, in America, a large chunk of whom had uh, grown up for five uh, important years without any fathers, uh, and some of them never got them back again because of World War II, came of age. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, other things were happening. The system of Jim Crow in the South was falling apart. And that led a lot of people to wonder about... I, I mean, the thing, that, the thing that really pushed Jim Crow into oblivion was the necessity of the United States to maintain the, uh, the picture of being the heads of the free world. Mm -hmm. And, of course, our... Um, our enemies in Moscow were able to tell the people with whom we were competing with them for influence in the third world, well, look, the Americans keep their Negroes in slavery, mm -hmm. practically speaking. Mm -hmm. So that was why, uh, from Truman's time on, successive uh, presidents and then the Supreme Court Country that's um, part of it. Another part of it, of course, was the war in Vietnam, mm -hmm. which started out, of course, ostensibly to save Indochina from communist aggression and turned into a sort of economic uh, quick fix. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mr. Johnson had the idea that we could somehow have a wartime economy without wartime propaganda, mm -hmm. and that really didn't work very well. But there were other things that were happening. Uh, the argument could be made that the basic Calvinism of the American soul was breaking down uh, in a way that it had not done before. The, um, the development of uh, first the birth control pill and then the uh, uh, 
result I mean the the collapse of the whole machinery of social life that had functioned you know for centuries basically to keep women from getting pregnant mm-hmm. it vanished overnight everything from chaperones at dances to house mothers at colleges mm-hmm. that all went poof which shows you that it was not really very strong to begin with mm-hmm. you know one of our problems in america is we've always had a very on the one hand a very censorious calvinist side uh married to how do i put this nicely married to a, a sort of amorality mm-hmm uh, the, the problem with morals that are cut off from faith is that they don't make any sense. You end up being good to be good mm-hmm. without anything else in, 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 uh, in mind. That, that doesn't really work for a long time. It will work for a while. And then, of course, you know, the climate of conformity and all that, uh, coupled with the discovery of people like the Beatniks, that there might be more to life than the uh, so-called American dream. You put all this stuff together into this this big mix of late fifties America, and out popped the counterculture, and basically it called into question everything about our culture, everything about our society. Some of it needing to be questioned, some of it not, but it didn't matter. Mm-hmm. It was all up for grabs, and that that was the counterculture, and they they. Um, moved away from shall we say shall we say more customary mores everything from uh, the normal church on Sunday to eastern religions and the new age Mm -hmm. from uh, the grey flannel suit to the colorful paisleys and tie-dyes that I remember (laughs) from properly groomed hair with the brill cream bounce to the shag and the beard and all that. Yeah. I remember all that stuff. And it seemingly came up overnight. It didn't, exi- really, but it, it looked that way. Anyway, and then, of course, a big part of the of the explosion was rock and roll music. Music was omnipresent in the counterculture. It was a, it was a huge part of it. Uh, as... Um, as... Uh, uh, what's his name? Dan McLean asks. Tom McLean asks in American Pie, "Do you believe in rock and roll? Can music save your mortal soul? Or can you teach me how to dance real slow?" So the uh, the rock stars of that era became well rock stars, mm-hmm. um, which we had not had before. Not like that. I mean, people like Frank Sinatra and Doris Day and so on. They were, they were big, but they didn't define everything the way the rock and rollers did. So, yeah, the British invasion, of course, the Beatles. Yes. Yes. I can remember watching um, Ed Sullivan with my dad back in '64, and we saw the Beatles. And Dad said, "Well, that's the end of American music, hmm. as we have known it." He was not a happy camper. <laughs> so I mention all this because uh, 
as uh, J.R.R. Tolkien said, and of course it's important to remember that fantasy literature became very popular with the counterculture, as did science fiction and horror and so forth, in a way that it hadn't been before. And Tolkien made, you know, in one of his letters, he made a point which is worth pondering. He said that the young people's movement of today, that being then, of course, not now, uh, is not all about the cults of faineance and filth, of doing nothing and, and being dirty. He said some of it is an unconscious longing for cavaliers. And I think that was very true. And we see this play itself out in the way that the counterculture eventually divided into two major strands. One was political, and it was centered in Berkeley. Yes, yes. What's that? Shocker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the uh, and then the the other was more social, cultural, etc. Mm-hmm. And for a while, that was centered in San Francisco, the fabulous district of Haight-Ashbury. Mm-hmm. Finding a new way, new mores, etc., etc. Well, of course, that didn't last too long in San Francisco. The, the summer of love turned into the uh, the summer of drugs and poverty. But the uh, nevertheless, there was a certain yearning for something more colorful, more picturesque. Mm-hmm than there had been before. And what that ended up giving us, frankly, wasn't all that much. The Renaissance fairs, uh, the Society for Creative Anachronism, (laughs) uh, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, Which, you know, some of which is is quite pleasant to this day. Mm -hmm. But that was not the side of the counterculture that dominated in the end that won what won was the political aspect and the social aspect only in the sense of the immoral portions of it I mean all all of the immorality and none of the color it's a uniquely American thing to be able to be depraved and boring at the same time (laughs) talent yeah but we've managed I mean if you're going to be depraved, you should have some flair, you know. Yeah, go all in. <laughs> but no such luck. Like a doc no with such... a DeLorean. If you're going to build a time machine, build one with some spunk. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And instead, you know, you, you end up with this, uh, uh, an orgy where no one can stay awake. <laughs> it's really, really pretty sad. But at any rate, uh, that got into the political DNA of that generation and those members of it who came to power. Uh, I remember in the 80s, 70s, 80s, and 90s in particular, people would make fun of ex-hippies who had gone straight, you know, and their their old story of, I'm going to change the system from within. And everybody would laugh because, yeah, what a sellout. Except they didn't sell out, sadly enough. If only they had. <laughs> they didn't sell out. They stayed true to all that was worst in the movement. As I say, the good parts, well, those didn't last. Not unlike, uh, uh, as Mark Anthony says, you know, the the uh, the evil men do lives after them. The good is often turned with their bones. Well, it's a lot, uh, very much like that with the counterculture, uh, which uh, the 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 non-dominant aspect of it, of course, did leave us one other great inheritance 
other than fantasy literature and uh, uh, the Ren Fair, and that was a host of communes all across the country, mm-hmm. uh, most of which went out of business, but not all. And so they're still with us, some of them, trying to find an alternative way. Um, there was a lot of yearning for something different and something better than the America of 1959 had to offer. But that yearning went unanswered in the end. Was it that big of a, like, was it that quick from 59 to 60? Was it just like a big change? No, no, no. it was a gradual thing over a few years. And mind you, the uh, I've left out a number of other contributing factors. I didn't speak, for instance, of the death of JFK, mm-hmm. which for a lot of uh idealistic if not well-informed youth uh was well i mean it was horrific for anybody Mm -hmm. my parents were no great fans of the kennedys but you know having the president of the united states assassinated is not not a fun thing even if you hate his guts Mm -hmm. um but for a lot of people who had invested their youthful hope in that young man and his beautiful wife to see Camelot come to an end like that. It's very disappointing. Uh, let's say with the assassinations of JFK and Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. These two uh, added to a sense of despair. Perhaps great stuff can't be brought about to the system. Perhaps we've got to overthrow the system what they never realized was that they could overthrow all that was good in the system retain everything that wasn't and add to it a ton mm-hmm. of oppression mm-hmm. they didn't realize that there's a lot they didn't realize but that was not the greatest tragedy of the counterculture of the 60s what was it uh well, funny you should ask. I think I'll tell you just just you know. No, I'm, I'm it, with it, you on mine right here. <laughs> yeah, it it. Well, you got to bear in mind that as a phenomenon, the the counterculture bore a lot of resemblances to other periods. You know, it wasn't something, although it felt like it. I'm sure to a lot of the participants, it wasn't something that popped out of nowhere and that had no precedent. Um, I was I was amused. You know, there was a. Uh, a uh, documentary called Berkeley in the 60s <laughs> and a friend of mine saw it and uh, gave me a one sentence review I ended up seeing it myself but he says the left takes a good long hard look at itself and likes what it sees <laughs> 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 but uh, in, in reality the counterculture was like a lot of things that went on before the closest resemblance I can give it was probably the um, uh, romantic revolt of the 18 teens to 30s uh, in Europe and in America mm-hmm. uh, but the the symbolist decadent thing of the 1890s uh, the interwar era with the lost generation and so forth those were, those all bore interesting uh, resemblances to the counterculture. Mm-hmm. 
but they had something that the counterculture lacked. They lacked the Catholic Church in possession of its full mental faculties. Because everything that the, shall we say, apolitical side, the cultural slash social side that the counterculture was looking for, was actually to be found in Catholicism. The, the mysticism that's always characterized such movements, mm-hmm. the yearning for the infinite, for the, uh, for the far and away as opposed to the here and now, mm-hmm. all that they could have found in the church, except that at that time, the church in America in particular was attempting to completely conform itself to Protestant America. And that was a bit of a problem because Protestant America was falling apart. We were sort of like rats jumping on a sinking ship. Mm -hmm. You see, that, by all rights, it should have been the church that took command of that particular cultural movement. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the proof of the pudding was the popularity of J.R.R. Tolkien Mm -hmm. among such people. But at the very moment that all this was happening, we were scrapping all of our tradition. And Tolkien himself, you know, said toward the end of his life that he went to Mass as a penance. Because they'd taken the Latin, they'd taken the, uh, the mystery. And it was, it was a penance for him. To the end of his life, he made all the responses at Mass in Latin. Very often very loud. <laughs> just so they, you know. Get my point across here. <laughs> the Lord be with you. Et cum spiritu tuo. So, uh, well, that would have roots back to. I don't want to bring up another topic, but Americanism from where Solange Hertz talks about Bishop, uh, uh, what's his face? Uh, Ireland? Gibbons? Uh, no, Carroll. Wanting, uh, oh, John Carroll. Wanting the vernacular. Well, see, that has always been a thread in the Catholic American story. Uh, that kind of Americanism, the Carroll kind, was somewhat submerged for a while because immediately after the French Revolution, you had an influx of French priests mm-hmm. and bishops, and they didn't really have much of a feeling for Americanism for some reason. But after the Civil War, it reasserted itself. And even there, though, it was kind of a, a, a sort of a draw mm-hmm. with the pro-Roman ultramontane American Catholics and the ethnic Cahensiite, as they were called, American Catholics. But thanks to World War One and World War Two, the uh, Americanist element won in a, in a very real sense. So uh, the history of the Catholic Church in America after Vatican II is certainly heavily contributed to by Americanism. That's far from the only ingredient, but it helped. One of the great paradoxes is that really bad Amer- or European Catholic theologians, like Taylor de Chardin or Karl Rahner, who couldn't get too much of a hearing in their native uh, in their native lands, could always get a hearing, and more importantly, money in America. Because American Catholics wanted to be of a certain sort wanted to be intellectual, but didn't have the faintest idea of how to go about it. And then would come these very suave, 
sophisticated European clerics, uh, happy to give lectures for a, uh, you know, a pretty penny. And American bishops and priests and lay people were quite willing to pay, pay the money to feel sophisticated. That was one of the unpleasantries running through 50s American Catholicism. There were better things. I mean, there was like the integrity crowd. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were people like the, um, <clears throat> the so-called detachers, J.F. Powers and uh, uh, Senator Eugene McCarthy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but that was not the mainstream. Neither, of course, were the people who were keen on being sophisticated. The mainstream of American Catholics were working class and post-working class Joes who, for whom Catholic was a tribal, uh, a tribal name and something they did on Sunday. Yeah. The rest of the time, they, wanted to, they just wanted to be accepted. And the apogee of that kind of American Catholicism came about on the day that I was born. JFK was elected. You were born that day? Yep. Oh, wow. The very day. <laughs> November the 8th, 1960. Okay. I was born the day he was elected at the apogee of American Catholicism or of Americanistic Catholicism. Mm-hmm. It's been downhill ever since. Yes. I, I hope it wasn't a causal connection. A steep hill ever since. <laughs> yeah. It's very sad. But I... Um, no. So that, in a nutshell... Is, is where we are and how we got here. Um, it's interesting if you read uh, books like The Greening of America and The Making of a Counterculture. Theodore Rozak wrote that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Charles Reich, I think, wrote uh, The Greening of America. And these were sort of uh, by way of being apologia for the counterculture. And yeah, they have a lot of good points. But as is so often the case in history, you have a, a revolutionary group that see the problems completely. They get it in a way that a lot of other people just don't. Mm-hmm. They see the problems all right, but their solutions are sometimes worse than the initial problems. Oh, you've got arsenic poison, eh? Take these strychnine tablets. It'll go away. Well, they will. You bet. So... That um, I, I, I think that the, the lost opportunity to the church, uh, because of our self-inflicted implosion, um, will be seen one day as a horrific, horrific thing. It was it was horrible that we we were so self-absorbed that we we didn't give a thought to what was going on. But of course, another thing to bear in mind is even as I'm talking, it's occurring to me. It's also important to bear in mind that by that time, most Catholic clergy that mattered, you know, the influential ones, no longer believed in the salvation of souls and the necessity of the church, therefore. Mm -hmm. So, whereas uh, priests of earlier generations would look at something like the, uh, well, like St. Clement Maria Hofbauer looked at the Romantics, or like uh, Monsignor Gray in Edinburgh, Scotland, looked at the decadence, or uh, 
like any number of, uh, of priests who brought in people like Chesterton and Bellick looked at that era uh, they were keen on saving souls but that's not an issue in the Catholic Church today I mean I don't mean to say you won't find people who aren't into saving souls who will mm -hmm. but they are not the people that matter they're not the people who set the policy um, there have been a lot of comparisons between our current lockdown and the pandemic in 17 and 18, 1917, 1918, 1919. Okay. What people don't realize is that while it's true that in some places the masses were closed, the were stopped, the churches were shut down, they did that as quickly as ever they could. And a lot of places they wouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. uh, now, I'm not talking about the results of it. Because, of course, you did have doubtless deaths you mightn't have had otherwise. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, even if they hadn't died then, they'd all be dead by now. Mm -hmm. It's like the old joke, you know, of 17, uh, 1,700,000 American Indians alive when Columbus arrived in 1492. Not one is alive today. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Who's buried in Grant's tomb? Schwartz. Neither <laughs> none of the uh, none of the Spaniards or Italians are alive either. So, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's 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 amazing how once a generation hits their nineties, they just start popping off right and left. <laughs> but uh, no, seriously, I, I think that we we um, what this this pandemic has shown is what it, what the neglect, what the failure to evangelize the uh, counterculture people of the 60s showed what the complete self-absorption in alteration of the church of the 60s also showed. Mm -hmm. uh, not really believing in the salvation of souls, they had to have some other reason to exist. And so for some churchmen of that sort, it means be becoming totally into social stuff. Now, don't get me wrong, that's, that is part of the church's mission, mm -hmm. but that's not all it is. For others, it was changing liturgy to come up with something that was more relevant, more meaningful. Mm -hmm. And a lot of lay people just marched out. Some others stayed and morphed into Susan from the parish council. Uh, you know, there's nothing sadder than hearing a woman pushing 80 saying, we have to have guitars to attract the young people. You remember Animal House? Yes, very well. I almost pulled a Belushi one tritium with the guitar lady up and this Susan was playing the guitar. I told my mom, I said, if she plays one more riff, I'm going all Belushi on her. <laughs> I told my love a story <laughs> that had no end. I, I admit I have a, a great weakness for the folk revival of the early 60s. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I do. I do. Not only that, I can tell you the very first song I can remember hearing on the radio. It was Petula Clock singing Downtown. Really? Yes. I remember that well. That's the first song I can remember. The, uh, you know, uh, coming out of the radio. Yeah. And that, that sort of sums up the early 60s for me, which I, you know, from what I remember of them, I enjoyed it was the mid-60s I found kind of annoying. 
But even they had uh, benefits in a sense. Oh, in case no one knows what we're talking about. When you're alone and life is making you lonely, you can always, you can always go, go downtown. <laughs> when you've got worries. I couldn't help myself. <laughs> oh no 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 that's fine that's fine you do your quests are you <laughs> yes <laughs> casey case <Kasem>, top 50 <laughs> oh boy casey casey yeah i met him twice really <laughs> yeah i used to hang out at nicodell probably owes me 10 bucks what's that <laughs> no so he, he owes me 10, 10 bucks <laughs> well, you're not getting out of me pal i'll tell you but no uh but of course they did have some really great music uh you know the the uh there is the house in your audience. <laughs> they call the rising sun. Uh-huh. Yep. And you remember, they, they called the Beatles the Fab Four. Well, in 1966, they literally created a band called the Monkees. Uh-huh. Yep. And because they were literally put together, the nickname was the Prefab Four. <laughs> Hey, hey, we're the monkeys. <laughs> That's the ones. Wake up, sleepy Jean. Oh, what can it mean? I'll play some more hits. Don't get... <laughs> <laughs> and Don McLean. Uh, uh, no, uh, uh, Scott McKenzie. Mm-hmm. Who I opened with. If you're going to San Francisco. But see, while that was playing, they were introducing into the mass such songs as Sons of God, hear his holy word, gather around the table of the Lord. And of course, your personal favorite, We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. We are one. Well, you know what I'm talking about. Yes, yes. I hear people's ears bleeding right now. <laughs> oh, the dog down the street's howling. <laughs> I have not yet begotten. And of course, the one that really, really predates all that, because it did come from the folk revival, and sounds vaguely religious without actually saying anything, is of course your favorite and mine, Michael Rowe. Oh no! No. Mercy. Hallelujah. I'm sorry, ladies. What are we saying there? (laughs) Michael Rowe, the boat ashore. Sister helped to trim the sails. River Jordan is wide and deep. River Jordan is chilly and cold. I, I mean, what's the point? What are we saying here? The answer is we're not saying anything. Yeah, yeah. But the the what I what I I will never forget was my first communion mass at your old blessed sacrament, the Jesuit Church in Hollywood. I'll never forget the communion hymn. Today, while the blossoms still cling to the vine I'll taste your strawberries I'll drink your sweet wine Thank God I don't remember that one (laughs) Almost done A million tomorrows may all pass away Ere I forget all the joy that is mine today (laughs) Alright, you made me do it to you. I made you know, it's because of him. What do we got? Lord, who 
Eagle's wings. Oh. And I will raise him up on Beagle's wings oh, right. and burn him blacker than the coal. That's not how it goes. My brother, my brother had to. He was going. He was going. He went to one of the. Uh, uh, he went to a mass Saturday evening after we did eight hours of evangelization at a festival because he was part of a, a baptism right afterwards. So he's up there. He was at the Norfolk Auto Mass. And uh, he didn't want to do it, but he was doing it just so he could be there. And uh, he was serving, and he's putting out the chalice, and all of a sudden they play Eagle's Wings, and he goes, I almost busted out laughing at the altar because we joke about this every day at seminary, and here they are playing. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean... I, I I think of the um, I think of uh, there was another one that always annoyed me. Oh yeah, uh, I'm I, I should explain that my my brother and myself were always parodists. You know, we take these things and have fun with the words. So the one, uh, I the Lord of Wind and Rain, yeah, yeah. I will give my people pain. <laughs> <laughs> and then you know further on. Um, here am I, Lord. Is it I, Lord? Uh-huh. I have heard you shrieking in the night. <laughs> we need to come up with a CD for this. This, this it actually might be a bestseller right there. I, I'm yeah. still working on the, you know, Total Eclipse My Heart. No, oh, there you go. Yeah. There you Get go. the priest. Turn around. <laughs> Gosh. I mean, they, they came up with this horrible stuff, but the real kids of that time. Mm-hmm. They were looking for what Gregorian chant would have brought them. They were looking for mystery, for incense. Mm-hmm. And because we didn't pre- present it to them, we didn't have it for them, they went to other stranger places. I mean, I don't want to point out something uh, that uh, is obvious, but tan books. Uh, with their wonderful selection of books we were talking about earlier mm-hmm. by uh, my uh, late friend, uh, Joan Carroll Cruz. That's precisely the stuff the church should have been leading with. Mm-hmm. The miracles, the wonders. That's what the youth of the 60s were looking for. And that's what we were denying. Not just in liturgy, but that was the period, you know, when, when all the theologians that went to Catholic school Every miraculous story would be discounted mm-hmm. by your teachers. Oh, well, that never happened. Oh, no, 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 no. And I, I uh, remember my father saying to one of my instructors, when, because I had, uh, I had complained to my dad that uh, the individual in question had been going out against miracles. And this, the person said to my father, well, you know, Mr. Cologne, that's uh, we have to have a, an adult faith today, a grown-up faith. That that's all childish nonsense. And my dad said, "Well, first, like, unless you become as little children, you shall enter the kingdom of heaven." So I guess that lets you out and all your adulthood, doesn't it? <laughs> and then he said, "Secondly, you think these things aren't true because they've never happened to you. But considering what sort of an individual you are." Why should anything decent ever happen to you? This was not received very well. No. But didn't bother my dad. He, he didn't care. So I mention all this, though, because 
we had we had the great treasure, the pearl of great price, and we played dog in the manger with it. Mm-hmm. And that is a crime. It's simply a crime. It's wrong. Uh, at a time when just as the period between the wars and various other times in our nation's history, the church could have made a big difference. We chose not to. You mentioned a uh, toxic version that we still have today. Well, yeah, I mean, it's just gotten, it's just gotten more so. And of course, the, uh, the, the nasty, as we used to call them, uh, Vatican II priests, and these were these are not the older people who actually you know had the ideas. These were the young annoying ones who consider themselves young Turks, who uh, put the ideas into practice, generally as brutally and nastily as they could. Hmm. Uh, you know, and if you dared to ask, well, Father, why are you doing? How dare you? Where did you get your degree in theology? Well, that kind of person eventually. A lot of them left the church, for which you know we're all grateful. If only they all have. But a lot of them became a lot of the bishops in the 80s and 90s, mm-hmm. uh, and now they've got even higher office. And so, you see a parallel between the generation that's running the state into the ground and the generation that's dominant in the church. Mm-hmm. Now, mind you, they're not all like that by any means. I am a junior member of that generation, so I can't write them all off because that would be self-hatred mm-hmm. which is unhealthy mm-hmm. but uh, as any as, as any uh, self-absorbed boomer can tell you you know you, you, you've got to cling to your self-esteem it's so important oh yes yes I'm feeling very self-esteemed because no one else will we'll get you a uh, emotional rabbit so you can pet it over there somebody give a buddy no. yeah I think <laughs> I think I need one but no, so uh, you know, th- th- this this is not a not a, a pleasant story to relate, mm-hmm. but it's an important one, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I hope it makes a certain amount of sense for uh, our audience, especially the younger ones, because what's difficult to get across is the feeling of excitement in those years. The counterculture people were very excited about what they were doing. And so were the recreationists. Mm-hmm. They were very excited. I can remember one gleeful clerical person saying, isn't it wonderful to be in at the start of a new liturgy? No, actually, Father, it's not. Especially because you're the one designing it. But... Uh, On that thought, did you ever ask a uh, cleric that was recovering the altar you know you got photos of in australia of uh, bulldozers in the sanctuary tearing down an you know an altar it, did you ever get the chance to ask him hey why are you doing that uh i never did um and they, you know i was a kid they wouldn't wouldn't have answered me my dad did mm-hmm. uh, on one occasion it was kind of funny he was on the parish council of uh parish we were in and now we already left Blessed Sacrament, sadly. But, and thank God, the Blessed Sacrament altar and all that, it's all the same the way it was when I was a kid. It's untouched. And that's because Blessed Sacrament, like so many 
churches and urban settings is exactly what you want to preserve them. A wealthy parish when it was built and then too poor to destroy it. Actually, uh, been to St. Louis, right? Yeah. You've been to yeah. old St. Joseph's, uh, the, uh, was it the German? Uh, the German church. Right. Yeah. We did a tour of that on the way across the land when we were moving back to North Carolina, and the guy said the same thing. It was the only, he said it kind of upsettingly. He goes, we haven't changed anything here because we haven't had the money to do anything. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the very best thing you can hope for, mm-hmm. is that they had money when they built it, and now the poor dudes don't have a dime. So... What uh, what my dad said was that well, father, it's amazing. Did did uh, one of your relatives die and leave you some money? And he said, what? Well, no. I mean, your your aunt, your uncle, somebody must have died and left you some dough. I don't understand what you mean. Well, the plan you've got to take out the altar and the, and the rails so that's going to cost, and we're not paying for it. So presumably you've got money elsewhere, and that's why I asked if you, you know, had an inheritance or something, because that money's not coming out of the parish, so it must be coming out of you. <laughs> no, sometimes it helps them to come down to reality. <laughs> you see, Father, you don't always get what you want, as the Rolling Stones could tell you. <laughs> and you know the the. Um, I'll tell you a funny story with this, though. To show you how much some of the clerics of that era associated with the counterculture mm-hmm. in their minds, in just the worst way, too. Um, you remember Father, um, oh, he was the chairman of theology at uh, Richard McBrien. Mm-hmm. Notre Dame, right? What's that? Was that Notre, Notre Dame, Dame, right? Yeah, Notre Dame. And a real, uh, a real annoying person if there was one he had thanks to Cardinal Mahoney he had a uh, what do you call it a um, column in the Archdiocesan newspaper the tidings well he um, (laughs) he wrote a scathing attack in his column now normally no matter how bad his columns were I never responded but he wrote this scathing attack on the younger priests, saying how they were all interested in Latin and chant and all that horrible stuff, and they didn't understand the good that priests his age had done for them, and blah, 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 blah. So after he finished blah, blahing, I wrote him a note, a fan letter, so to speak. And I said, Dear and Reverend Father, I understand exactly how you feel, given your age. This must be a very difficult time for you to live through. But don't worry. I'll explain things to you in the words of a song that I'm sure you'll understand. And what I said to him was, come gather around people wherever you roam and admit that the waters around you have grown and accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone if your time to you is worth saving. <laughs> then you better start swimming and you'll sink like a stone for the times they are a-changing. And I... I I was I was wrong. I thought it was going to be this one. <laughs> oh, no, no. <laughs> oh, not hit the road, Jack. No, 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 no. 
and of course the 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 uh, uh, I, I didn't send him all of it but this one I closed it with uh, come fathers and mothers throughout the land and don't criticize what you can't understand your sons and your daughters are beyond your command your old road is rapidly aging Please get out of the new one if you can't lend your hand for the times they are changing. Well, oh my stars, what an angry letter I got back. <laughs> Ooh, he was set sets that I should have dared to use a hymn, uh, a hymn uh, to use a song that was an anthem for the countercultural generation to ridicule it. And I responded. Oh, I didn't mean any ridicule of my father. Only clarity. <laughs> he was so upset. I, uh, I was glad. <laughs> I was glad. It, it, this is not, not germane at all, but it reminds me of the only other moment in my life that really felt quite like that, which was back in 2000 when I came home from Boston. And I'd forgotten that the Democratic Party were having their national convention in L.A. Now, this was before 9-11, so you could still meet people at the plane. Mm -hmm. I get off my lowly coach gate, you know, door, and I see someone waiting for somebody to get off in first class. And who should it be but Teddy Kennedy? Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And I'm thinking, you know, what can I do that will annoy this guy without giving him a chance to call security? And then it hit me. <laughs> hit me all at once. I was about this far from him, and I went, Senator Teddy Kennedy! <laughs> and I started laughing like a moron. And then I, I walked right past him, turned around, started laughing, and other people started laughing and pointing. He turned red as a beet. And if looks could kill, I would be a dead man. <laughs> he he was not a happy camper. And again, you know, what was he going to do? Security. That man laughed at me. And I'm an important senator and everything. And, and he's laughing. Well, I'm afraid Father McBrien was a little bit the same way. I felt so bad. But seriously, um, the these folks are still living in 1968. Mm -hmm. And I... I, honestly, I won't mention names because I'm too nice, but there are any number of senior clerics on this planet that I would just love to run up to, grab them by the scruff of the neck, shriek in their ears, Woodstock is over. 1968 is gone, little man. You understand? You're going with it. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, old man. Bye-bye. But instead... What do they do? They call the young priests and the young uh, laity names. Mm -hmm. They call them rigid and other nasty uh, sobriquet. And see, what's stupid about that is that if you declare war on your future, you'll lose. And that's a funny thing, you see. For a quote-unquote conservative, traditional, orthodox person, it's not the same thing because they don't think of themselves in generational terms. Mm -hmm. They think about what's true, what's real. It doesn't mean they're always right, 
but that's what they're aspiring toward. So in other words, it's not about keeping up or being the latest thing or that. No. How do I conform myself to reality? That's the question. But that'd be living in truth, which that's the definition of conforming yourself to reality. Yeah, precisely right. But for a person of the sort that I've described, they've always got to be at the cutting edge. Oh, they've got to be advanced. But the problem with that is that, humanly speaking, you can't do it. You always kind of get stuck at some point in your life. And there is nothing more ridiculous than the latest thing 10 years later. Mm-hmm. It's just absurd. Felt you know? banners. I'm sorry? Felt banners. Yeah. Uh, Betamax. Betamax. I mean, you know, you, you, you say anything like that and, and you'll find yourself giggling. You know? The uh, there's there's a movie by uh, Whit Stillman I, I recommend highly in this area called The Last Days of Disco. <laughs> you know, one of the characters is going out about how disco isn't just other music. You know, it's a statement. It's a movement. It goes on and on. You know, you're like, yeah, okay. And of course, it's written to be that way. Yeah, yeah. The the uh, the absurdity is is made manifest. Well, that's how these guys are. And they run the church and they run the state. Um, unfortunately, even junior members of it, like uh, Mr. Obama, are myself heavily infected. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Trumpster, of course. Well, uh, not online. Uh, the same. But notice. Notice this interesting factoid. Mm-hmm. When Reagan ran the first time, people were saying, my gosh, he'll be 70 when he's inaugurated. Mm-hmm. Notice how nobody finds the ages of our presidential candidates objectionable. Right. Because that generation is still in charge. Mm-hmm. And they're all, they're all in their 70s, 60s if they're young. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why the whole thing has shifted. Oh, it makes perfect sense we'd have an 85-year-old as president. Because he was there, man. Yeah, you hear too young. You don't hear too oh, old. Yeah. Oh, if, if you don't appreciate the Rolling Stones, you have no place in the White House. I mean, it, it, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely crazy. Uh, my generation was probably one of the stupidest we've ever had. And stupid when we were young stupid when we were middle-aged and now going off into dotage still stupid and they educated my generation which would make us let's say very ignorant <laughs> not not stupid in the same way because some of you could see that what we were pulling was crap mm-hmm. but you still owe your formation to us <laughs> and so you know if you were never taught to tie your shoe guess what you may be a very nice man <laughs> You may be a brilliant man. You may be a, 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 any kind of nice things you like, but you still can't tie your own shoes because, like, you were never taught and stuff. Right. And then, I mean, I find this here um, in my school. The kids are great. I mean, they're, they're, they're very good Catholics, very bright. They're a joy to be with. That's wonderful. But, but one thing I've learned is that the vocabulary is shrinking. Mm-hmm. Words that... I knew at their age. They don't know. 
And my education wasn't all that great, you know. But even at Virgin Junior High uh, in inner city LA, they taught us Greek uh, mythology, mm-hmm. you know, in, be- in between uh, dodging stabbings. Uh, so, I mean, it's, I, I don't know how it's all going to work out. One of my suspicions about the dynamic behind our current lockdown, so forth, and, and, and let me emphasize, I really have no idea what the best thing to do is in the current situation. Uh, I don't really know how severe the disease is. I don't know anything. What I do know of a certainty, well, I know two things of a certainty. One is that my generation never faced anything of this sort before. Mm-hmm. We were never in a world historic event. We didn't. We weren't like our parents in World War One, the Depression, World War Two. So this, for a lot of our leadership class, is the first time they've ever had a real crisis. Mm-hmm. And they, are, they don't know what to do about it. Mm-hmm. What, do, what would a grown-up do? Well, uh, we'd lock everything down and wait for it to go away. Maybe. Maybe he would. But you see, there's a bit of panic, a bit of hysteria in the leadership class. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, you know, you, a lot of people are thinking, oh, well, they want to take away our freedoms and all that. Well, I'm sure, you know, part of it is if you've got if you've got subjects, you know, it's like having toys. You should be able to play with them or, you know, how do you know you rule them if you can't play with them? But I also think the part of it is that they don't really know what to do and they feel the need to do something, you see, mm-hmm. and to be seen to do something. Similarly, I think the lack of belief in the salvation of souls is a definite handicap for the bishops trying to deal with the current crisis. A lack of grasp of Catholic theology is probably a problem for them. You know, and also they don't, they're so hysterical, they don't give any thought to later on. Again, this is how children are. They don't give a thought to what the results of these actions are going to be. And I'm speaking here specifically not so much to the governments, who presumably have some idea about the economy, I'm thinking of the bishops, because here's the problem. If I'm your bishop and I tell you, well, really, all you need is a spiritual communion, perfect data contrition, and you're good to hook, why should you come back when I'm open for business again? Yep, it follows. It doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. What I've just done is given you a license to go your own way forever. Mm -hmm. And the problem, you see, up until now, the difference between my requirements for uh, keeping the church uh, fed and watered with your money and my theology, which told me that you don't need the church, these two never came together mm-hmm. before. They have now. And so the problems in my theology as your bishop are now manifest. But there's a second problem. The second problem is, it is certainly legitimate, especially given the diverse historical on whether and how and when to open the churches and have masses and so on. That, you know, that you, you could legitimately differ on. But here's what can't be different on. Reaction 
to the idea that churches are not absolutely essential and abortuaries are. Mm -hmm. There should not be a jurisdiction on this globe where the churches are closed and the abortuaries are open whose bishop is not shouting bloody murder. Mm -hmm. But it's all crickets. It's all crickets. Uh, no one has pointed out this terrible, terrible, terrible uh, thing. And of course, it will lend suspicion to the idea that our current church leadership don't really think there's much of a problem with abortion. We know from the reaction to Humanae Vitae that a lot of the hierarchy really don't have a problem with contraception. Mm -hmm. They didn't when they were young priests back in the 60s, they don't now. And in those days, a lot of them were very vocal about their disagreement with, um, with uh, Paul VI and Humanae Vitae. But instead of being fired, it was the priests who stuck by Humanae Vitae who were persecuted in those days. And priests who attacked it who ended up as vicars general and chancellors of dioceses. Here's one. Before, we'll go before the 60s. If a problem like this happened with King St. Louis, King St. Stephen, Blessed Carl, would they seek advice from the church first? What, for the, uh, for the closing of churches? Yeah, any well, problems or anything like this. Yeah, well, they would in, in Catholic countries and certainly in areas like Boston. Mm -hmm. uh, but now, uh, even then, in areas where the church was not dominant or where anti-Catholics were dominant, yeah, we'd, we'd be shut down. And this happened during the great pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, the difference is that it was very spotty. Mm -hmm. In other words, every place handled things differently. Mm -hmm. And every um, every bishop handled things differently. The Archbishop of Philadelphia, during the pandemic, he closed all the churches mm -hmm. and forbade public masses. Right. And that you know that was done in some places, but it was not partly because of the internet. I think it was not the uh, the general thing that it is today. I mean, we've had occasion before during this uh, period while we've been doing these shows. We've had occasion before to reflect on the uh, weirdness that you and I are physically unable to see people a quarter mile away. But here we are on the other side of the world from each other, yeah. hanging out. Yeah. Well, that's different. <laughs> that wasn't the case in 1918. Right, trust right, me. Right. Um, and you know there have been there have been any number of peculiar occurrences. Uh, during, that we all know about now, especially the very, very old people. You know, uh, his or her brother died in the pandemic. Uh, they've survived this one, or vice versa. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, or somebody who lived through both the pandemic and this, or someone who, who lived through the pandemic but died in that. You know, you, you've got these really ancient oldsters, and we hear their stories all over the world quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, you know the Italian, uh, the Italian World War II vet, who survived all sorts of things, and now I think 102 or something, he recovered from the virus mm -hmm. in Italy, which was not a good place to recover. Right. Uh, but we all know about these stories, and that, of course, is neither good nor bad. It's just it speaks to the differences between now and the last great pandemic. Mm -hmm. I think that 
this will certainly be a lesson for the future because if we have another pandemic and I don't see why we shouldn't especially if uh, you know if, if Bill Gates has anything to do with it well who knows <laughs> but life being what it is I wouldn't be surprised if we had another pandemic in two or three or four or five years um, we can't do this again not like this not like this I don't know what they'll do mm-hmm. but the the um, I think you know presuming that we're we're back to whatever passes for normal by September I think we'll um, recover from this thing relatively quickly but another one in the next couple of years next three years hmm I, one thing I I, uh, I do hope comes out of this is that people people take things rather more seriously. I know for myself, I will never be able to look at the sacraments the same way again. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know how it was. You you didn't mind being uh, late for mass necessarily. Mm-hmm. Or if you miss confession because you were, you know, you didn't get it. Well, I'll go next week. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, as, as uh, Cliff Richards tells us in The Young Ones, uh, tomorrow, I wait until tomorrow because tomorrow sometimes never comes. And, you know, the funny thing is, there's um, one of the priests here is Cyril Malabar, right? Mm-hmm. Now, we've just been getting uh, the Latin Novo Soto no Byzantine liturgies, no no nothing that we were used to, mm-hmm. uh, partly because of the way they give communion, communion both kinds being, you know, a little difficult right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but until this hit, I would go to the Cyril Malabar Corbana one night a week, the one night it was offered on Thursday mm-hmm. nights. And I remember the last prayer is it begins with a... Um, a word of praise to the altar upon which the sacrifice has taken place. Mm-hmm. And then the prayer ends with, uh, I know not when I, I, I go now, I know not when I shall offer another kurbana, another sacrifice. And the last time I did it, this you know this was all in the wind. They were going to be shutting everything down and so forth. And I thought, my God, it came true. I know not. Yeah. When I shall offer another Corbana, certainly not in that ma- in that manner. Uh, so I, I think things like that, at least for a while, before we forget. You know how we are. It's like nine eleven. Uh, Give it a week. Will never be the same again until they were. Yeah. <laughs> you know well, no, the riots yeah. in ninety. Huh? No, yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Well, the riots in ninety two in L A. You know, mm-hmm. oh well, this changes everything until it doesn't. Yep. <laughs> we uh, we forget, you see. But for a little while, anyway, we'll remember. I I have to say that you know I'm turning sixty this year, and I was sort of hoping that I'd be able to creep out of life without another world historic event. No. Now that we got your birthday, everyone can send you a birthday gift. <laughs> yeah, well, it's true. You know, I'm turning sixty November the eighth. 19, uh, uh, 2020. The better the gag gift, the better the gift. 
boy. Said more. No, yeah, you know what's what's funny about this, and as one of my publishers, uh, you as a TAD employee will appreciate or not, uh, but the man who taught me how to write was my writing instructor at New Mexico Military Institute, my first college, Mr. Carl Van Horn, huh. whom uh, I met 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. And Mr. Van Horn was born on November the 8th, 1920. He was my age now when I first met him. And when I turned 60, that if he was still alive, that would have been his centennial. Oh, wow. And that 40 years since I was a college kid. Yeah. Just boom. Flies no by. more. All gone. Bye-bye. It's, 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 it's very strange. All of the, the 60s people I knew... They're all elderly. Mm-hmm. I mean, quite apart from everything else, I know quite a number of people, especially of the, shall we say, non-political current. Uh, they're all old. Yeah. You know, and I and I can remember when they weren't. I, I remember, I guess it must have been 68. I must, I must have told the story, but. Uh, I was going to uh, first or second grade in uh, at uh, Blessed Sacrament in Hollywood. And one of the things I used to do after school, my pal Myron and me would go up to the soda fountain at the late lamented Rexall Drugs on Hollywood and Highland. So we sat down, and there was this blonde girl sitting there, a blonde lady, I should say. She was quite considerably older than us. Uh, and Myron, who usually would talk a mile a minute, he didn't say a word. He clammed up. But she asked me where I was from, and this night, and we chatted. You know, I said, well, I just came from school. She says, yes, but you don't sound like you're from here. I said, well, we've moved out from New York recently, and, you know, this kind of thing. And so we're, we're chattering back and forth. And then she says, well, I really enjoyed this, but I've got to go. Great to talk to you. And she got up and walked away. And Myron, who had said nothing at all, he says, do you know who that was? I said, no, some blonde lady says she's a singer. My brother loves her. He's got a re- he's got a record of hers. And I said, "Oh, her name is Janice Joplin." And that that was Hollywood in the '60s. You could meet Janice Joplin at a uh, at the Rexall uh, soda fountain. Oh wow! It. <laughs> It was pretty strange. Have you ever heard of an actress named Julie Newmore? What did she play? She was Catwoman in the Batman show. Yeah, yeah. She was the exotic one. The Eartha Kit was one, and there was another one who was sort of nice, but nondescript. She was the one with the accent and the manner. Yeah, yeah. That's Julie Newmore. Well, I met her 10 years ago at a comic convention that a friend of mine dragged me to. And uh, for this to make sense, I have to tell you that there was a movie that came out maybe 20 years ago that I had to review for the uh, uh, National Catholic Register. Terrible film. Patrick Swayze is a transvestite. But it was, yeah, don't even start on me. But it was called To Wang Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar. 
<laughs> that being the inscription on a picture of Julian Umar in the Chinese restaurant where the movie starts, which the transvestites steal as a totem on their way out to San Francisco for a contest. They're very involved. Yeah. All right. So I meet Julian Umar at this thing, and I'm, you know, she's at that time, I mean, she's got to be 90 now, but she was, you know, in her 80 then, mm-hmm. and still Julian Umar. And she was an old lady, but she was still. Yeah, she was still Julian Umar. You know how some people, they get old and they're almost unrecognizable? Yeah, yeah. Not her. Not her. She, no, no, no. She's perfect. <laughs> so, I, uh, you know, we started chatting and I told her about, you know, about having to see that movie. She goes, Oh, I'm so sorry, darling. That was a terrible film. I said, Yeah, I know. And I had to review it. So, we keep talking. Then I, I had noticed, I had run into it, in fact, that there was a bar in the convention center. Mm-hmm. And so I said, uh, Mr. Noir, there's a, there's a bar there. Would you like me to get you a drink? She says, oh, yes, darling. I said, well, what would you like? She says, oh, I don't know. Uh, ramen fruit juice or something like that. I said, all right. So I went off, and I, I got her a, a Mai Tai or a zombie or something, and I brought it back. I handed it to her, and I said, to Julie Newmar, thanks for everything, Charles Kulow. <laughs> and she took the glass and she goes, straw in hand, you are an evil man. <laughs> <laughs> My inner 13-year-old screamed with delight. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was it was really neat. Uh, that was that was a, a fun thing. It's probably one of the very few uh, comic book conventions I've been to, but I really enjoyed it. I ran into all these old actors of stage and screen, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, very much, very much, very much enjoyed it. So, did uh, anyway. did you dress up? Well, I have to ask. Did you dress up? No, no. Okay. I was just in a jacket and tie. Okay. The one time, uh, well, the two times actually, because it was for the same event that I dressed up, as you put it, was to go to the house of a man called Forrest Ackerman. Mm-hmm. Now, you've never heard the name, probably. No. But he invented uh, horror and science fiction fandom. Mm-hmm. He, he, uh, he was the editor for a long time of a magazine called Famous Monsters of Filmland. Hmm. And he was Ray Bradbury's first agent. Mm-hmm. Uh, he and Ray Bradbury and Ray Harryhausen founded the Los Angeles Science Fiction uh, fan thing back in the 40s mm-hmm. and at the time of our story about 15 years ago now maybe maybe a little more uh, his home the Acker Mansion as it was called was filled with memorabilia from science fiction and horror films he had Robbie the Robot and Dracula's cape you know mm-hmm. because he'd known Bela Lugosi very well he knew all these people. He was that old, you say. Uh-huh. So his house was like a museum. And he would have people, every uh, every Saturday that he would do it, people would come through and do tours. And if you like that kind of stuff, and of course I grew up on it, it, it was absolutely great. So the first time I went, I went with my pal Bill Bersack, and we both went in morning coats, you know, striped trousers, top hats, and all that. The second time, I went by myself, and it was uh, early morning, Saturday, very drizzly and 
gray and coolish. It was in January. But I had a bowler hat on my head, wing collar, and my gray suit, spats. And then there were like nine or ten other nondescript people who'd come up to do the tour, but I was in front. I rang the doorbell, and he would always do this. Ackerman slowly opens the door, and it creaks. So, <laughs> he says, may I help you? And I pulled my bowler off my head, and I said, oh, yes, sir. Our automobile broke down just off the road, up the road, and I was wondering if we might use your telephone. Says, oh yes, <laughs> do come in. You know, and everyone, everyone was tittering. <laughs> Life is a pain if you don't learn how to enjoy it. Exactly. Exactly. Show some laughter in your life. Oh gosh, I mean, it's it's. There's too much horror and sadness as is. So, if, Lar if St. Lawrence can crack a joke getting grilled on a gridiron, I think we can make a joke anytime. Oh, I'll say. Well, you know, I, I think it was St. Philip Neri who carried a joke book. Yeah. And uh, St. Teresa of Avila who said, Oh, Lord, spare me from sour saints. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah and this is something I think we, we tend to lose sight of, you know. Um, God has given us a lot of weapons in the fight that we're in, and humor is by no means the least of them. Mm -hmm. It's very important. Uh, geniality is important. You know, why do you, why do we have to be nasty all the time? Except that one feels good about it. You know, I'm nastier than anybody else, so I'm the holiest. No, that's not how that works, actually. Oh yeah. Well, let me ask you a question, smart guy. Do you kneel or sit during the offertory? Hmm? Hmm? Well, um, okay, Buttercup, I hate to break it to you, but there's nowhere in the Roman Missal that directs what the laity is supposed to do at all. It's all custom. My advice is if you find yourself in a place where they sit for the offertory, sit. If you find yourself in a place where they kneel for the offertory, kneel. No. No. We're doing it the way we did it when I was seven years old back at St. Alphonsus in, in Moron Heights, where I come from. Old Monsignor Oblivion, he would never have stood for this. Yeah, okay, great. That's precisely the mindset that we have to avoid. I, I hate to quote St. Francis de Sales, but with him being a saint and all. But you definitely attract more flies with honey than vinegar. If, if the salvation of souls, of course, mm -hmm. is what we're about. But you take that away, and then you know what? Let the liberal run the church as a, as a money-making outfit or as a social welfare thing. You be as nasty as you like. Me, I'll just go insane. It doesn't matter. Even for those uh, those that like uh, the Sedes who lose some charity and quote Bellarmine all day long, Francis got that from Bellarmine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and you know the the we have to get over it. 
we really have to get over it. Uh, you know, one, one of the things I tell younger people who don't understand why trads my age are such nasty folk, I have to explain to them, you got to bear in mind that trads of a certain age are like abused children. Mm-hmm. Abused children very often have a hard time being nice because mm-hmm. like bad things happen to them and stuff. Now, mind you, it's not impossible, but when you're dealing with such a person, you always have to keep it in mind and make allowances. Mm-hmm. You know, I uh, I remember one dear old lady who had been a choir mistress in many many parishes. She she was natively fairly sweet, but she had kind of a nasty edge to her. You know, she was very exact about things, and she had gotten to the point in her life where anything she didn't like was novus soda. I mean, you know, I remember her saying, oh, those Mormons, they're so novu sordo. I'm like, what? <laughs> it, it, it's like some people use fascist. I've heard this know. conversation before, yes. Yeah, it, it just, anything you don't like is novu sordo. Yeah, so, what does that mean? <laughs> why should it mean anything? You know, as Humpty Dumpty says through the looking glass, it's a question of who's to be the word to be master, the word or me. <laughs> Words mean exactly whatever I say they mean. Okay, well. But in this particular case, she, as I say, was a choir mistress. A friend of mine was getting married, and a mutual friend of ours was going to be running the choir, but he had a problem. He had read the motu proprio of St. Pius X on church music, mm-hmm. and so he knew that Catholics should not use the wedding march or Here Comes the Bride, because they come from secular uh, you know, operettas and so forth. So he knew that this wasn't going to do. He couldn't do that. So... He approaches this lady and asks her, you know, when you were running uh, running uh, choirs before Vatican II, what did you use for the processional recessional for the weddings? Was, oh, we use Here Comes the Bride of the Wedding March. <laughs> and he says, well, you know, our mutual friend, he says, I don't think he really wants either of those. He goes, oh, that's so-and-so. He is so novo sordo. There really wasn't anything to be said. No, no, no. You know, and my, my friend who was going to be running the choir, he just looked at her, you know, and says, uh, okay. <laughs> you pull, pull up Princess Bride. You, you say those things, but I don't know if you know what you're saying. <laughs> well, but he, he, he couldn't, he couldn't say that to her, but he felt it, you know. <laughs> I don't think that means what you think it means. <laughs> But she, she was bound and determined. Nope, nope. It, it, if it's a wedding, it's got to have here comes the bride of the wedding march. Otherwise, it's still Vasona. <laughs> you know, and similarly, another thing people get bent out of shape uh, gothic versus fiddleback vestments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, if I had a dime for every time I heard well, people whining about that, and you know, my answer to it, I, I'm going to reveal the terrible, the terrible truth. My view on the gothic versus fiddleback fight. Are you ready? Go for it. Okay. If it's cold, wear gothic. Mm-hmm. If it's hot, wear fiddleback. Because you see, the gothic vestments 
came from areas that were cold. Mm -hmm. So priests needed a lot of covering, mm -hmm. you know, to stay comfortable. But the fiddleback developed in places like uh, Italy and Spain, where it's hot. And so they were abbreviated. And if you think about the shape of them, there's like a thermodynamic airflow there. You see? You said that T word, so the, though. The T word? Think. Oh! <laughs> yeah, my mistake. Sorry. <laughs> but this is the kind of thing, you know, I remember, forget, forget trads, before uh, 1900, there was a big fight in the Catholic Church in England. Mm -hmm. Two factions, the Romanizers and the Gothicists. And as far as the Gothicists were concerned, if your church wasn't done in good old English Gothic, you were a traitor to England. And as far as the Romanizers were concerned, unless it was done in Romanesque slash Baroque, you were a traitor to Rome, but you're, you know, this side of Protestant. So these are the two factions, and boy, do they go after an aberrant times. All right, well, I think it was Cardinal Vaughan, but whoever it was, the then Archbishop of uh, Westminster, decided that they needed to build a new cathedral. Well, as you can imagine, the deeply divided English church lined up on both sides. Well, the Cardinal did something which I got to tell you, I've, I've always thought was brilliant. He chose Byzantine. It wasn't either one. <laughs> and, and see, that was very smart, because if you can't give people what they want, mm -hmm. you can at least not give their opponents what they want, mm -hmm. and then they don't mind. I mean, they didn't get their thing, but neither did the others. And the funny thing about that, though, the downside is that Byzantine is meant for a hot, bright climate like Greece. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In England, it's a guarantee of muggy, uh, you know, cold, just... They're damp, oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and just not a pleasant experience. But I have to say that I was in England, in, in London, at the height of the terrible heat wave of 2003. The only time in my life that Westminster Cathedral really did the job its architecture was intended for. The sunlight came blazing in through the little windows, and it was cool because it was so thick, mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, flaming hot. And the 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 light hit the mosaics exactly the way it's supposed to. Uh -huh. I mean, it was it was, it was wonderful. <laughs> and they could just pick that thing up and move it to to some Greek island. It'd be great. <laughs> but you know, you got to take what you get in life. It, it, it's 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 uh, it's it's that's the way people are. So my my advice for, to pull all this stuff together is be reasonable center on what's important the salvation of souls the older I get the more I realize that when we when we let anything else become our primary goal and things churchy then we go into any one of, of, of a countless number of blind alleys mm -hmm. both personal and corporate um, I will always see the the I always see the uh, uh, counterculture as a huge lost opportunity. Look at the Wicca thing, which became so big then. Mm -hmm. Now, what's the big deal with Wicca? I mean, apart from it being an age-old religion that was invented in the 1920s. That's yeah. not what I mean. Their big practice 
is what? It's honoring the seasons. Mm-hmm. Now, stop and think. If we Catholics celebrated the church calendar as we should, we'd have everything they sought out of Wicca mm-hmm. and a lot more. But what happens instead? We got away from it. After Vatican II, we got rid of the Rogation Days, we got rid of Ember Days, we got rid of processions, uh, May crownings, Corpus Christi processions, all that stuff went out the window. Mm. Uh, And that was precisely the kind of thing that someone who might be inclined in a Wiccan direction would have been attracted by. I mean, it's very important to bear in mind that the truth has many, many different facets, so will attract different people for different reasons. One person might be interested in Catholicism because of its literature, another because of its music, another because of its history, another because of the social teachings, mm-hmm. um, another because, I mean, during world, during various of our wars, any number of soldiers have converted to Catholicism through watching Catholic chaplains mm-hmm. offering their lives while their confreres of other faiths were, you know, waiting to do services for the men. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously those are all very, very different reasons to come to the truth. But any one of them is sufficient. Mm -hmm. And every one of them is necessary. Uh, Our Lord told us to cast a wide net. And we need to. Mm -hmm. You know, it will make us fishes of men. Well, men come in many, many different varieties. Is that uh, that uh, thing of the that uh, passage of the Bible reminds us? Many different kinds of fish, many different kinds of men. One of the uh, one of the jokes you know about religious life in the church is that there seemingly is a different order for every personality type. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that this is precisely the kind of diversity that's good and right and true. And we should all of us constantly be on the lookout for what will bring people in. Amen to that. And that, you know, you meet one person, as I say, they're attracted by the liturgy, great, that's what you show them. Mm-hmm. Another person likes the, the family life, great. But then, of course, that means you've got to lead a family life that somebody's going to get, want to get into. Mm-hmm. Uh, but similarly... The most public aspect of the of the faith is the uh, liturgical year, and the paraliturgical year. You know, mm-hmm. bonfires at St. John's Eve and all that kind of stuff, which we should be doing. Yeah. Uh, we should always invite non-Catholic friends to anything like that, and to, to baptisms and confirmations and so forth. Uh, you know, if you if if you're working in a uh, in an office, well, you're not. You're a tan, which it wouldn't help, but. If you were in a, uh, if you were surrounded by a lot of non-Catholics in some office that you were at, mm-hmm. and you're having a baptism for one of your kids, throw a party and invite your your uh, workmates to come, because mm-hmm. you'll have to explain what baptism is all about. Mm-hmm. They'll want to know. They'll want to know, and you know, then you get a party out of it. Exactly. Better make sure you have a party. Yeah, have some fun. Oh yeah, oh yeah. But you see, this is this is turning your life into part of the apostolate. Mm-hmm. 
We failed to do it with the counterculture in the 60s, and the result of that failure is that we're in the spot we're in now. Um, and there's only one way out of it, and that's doing better. Mm-hmm. And that has to start with us as individuals. You can't expect anybody to do better than you yourself are going to do. If you can't start with yourself, yeah. Yeah. I mean, because really, at the end of the day, you're the only one you can control. Mm-hmm. You, uh, My dad used to say, if you could be the kind of man you think every other man should be like, you'll have accomplished something. Well, I think the old man was right. So, at any rate, uh, be of good cheer, ladies and gentlemen, because we're all still breathing. I guarantee you, if you're watching this right now and listening to it, you're breathing. <laughs> so I was going to say, you're not dead. <laughs> no, you're not dead. You're not dead. And so, as with Ebenezer Scrooge, the, the bed is your own, the room is your own, and best of all, the time is your own. So redeem the times are evil. Redeem the time. Make something out of it. Yes. You know, make something out of this. I'm thinking I'm gonna go have lunch. <laughs> well, that just make sure you say grace beforehand. Yes. Well Charles, I appreciate All right. bud. All right. Let's do it with again. That, yep, yep. The uh, as long as we're stuck here in uh in lockdown, it's not like either of us are going anywhere. I thought Although, I thought you guys were close to being out of it. We are actually May fifteenth, uh, May fifth. They're going to be lightening up something or other. I'm not sure what. May fifteenth, uh, though. They're um, well. That's interesting. May fifteenth. They're um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? May fifteenth. They're um, Open. going to be doing public mass. Yeah. Now probably there'll be limitations on the numbers. But at any rate, they'll be doing public mass. I, uh, if I were a betting man, I would bet that we'll be able to move more or less freely around Austria uh, by the end of May. Okay. Uh, now, what makes it a little bit weird for me, I don't intend to leave here until I know I can come back. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we'll be able to move around fairly freely in Austria, but I don't know when the borders will open. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my best friend in Germany, his mother is dying right now. And if I could, I'd jump on a plane, but I can't. Right. So the um, that'll be the next step. When there'll be flights back to America, or not back to America, but coming back, I do not know. Um, I really don't know. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, if I wanted to go home tonight, I could get a KLM flight to Amsterdam, yeah, and then another KLM flight to LA. But you couldn't get back. But I couldn't. I couldn't go back. Yeah. So I will not go back to the states until I know I can return, say, uh, easily and safely here. And when that will be? Won't be today. I, it might be later. It 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 won't be today. It might be, you know, if it's sometime in the summer. I'll go home for whatever I've got left of summer vacation. If not, then I hope I'll be able to go home, get home for Christmas. Right. But really, uh, we don't know. We don't know if there'll be a second wave of infections once the thing, uh, you know, there's a lot we don't know. 
We don't know when they'll come up with a decent treatment for it. We don't know when they'll come up with a vaccine. We don't know anything. Uh, but, ladies and gentlemen, I, I will close on that note because, in reality, this is simply a reminder that this is the way life is in reality. What all of our frightened masters don't realize is that we none of us have any assurance anyway. We have not here an abiding city. Uh, we had the ability to shut down everything, to lock it down, and we did. Is the death toll going to be much less because we did it or not? You know, we'll never know. Mm-hmm. We'll never know. That's, that is the rough thing, too, and I'll leave with this. The rough thing when you're thinking about our civil leadership, our church leadership, is another story. When you're thinking about our civil leadership, remember that they really don't know. And the numbers that have been handed by experts, who knows what they mean? I, one of the things that's bothered me from the beginning is that they say X number of people have been tested. As though, you know, X number of people have been tested, of that X number, uh, 10% or whatever are positive. Okay, well, what keeps someone who's already been tested from getting it? Mm-hmm. What would that... Uh, and then how many, how many people who haven't been tested had it and recovered? Mm-hmm. It, 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 it... So... Be a little merciful to our masters on this score only. Remember that they're little childrens who never ever had to face a big thing like this and they're doing the best they can from what they see on movies and television of, of what our, our daddies did in the big war and in the pandemic. And, and, and like they don't really know what to do and it's hard because like they're little only they've got white hair. <laughs> so when you when you're run by little people, by little ones, it's tough. I, I, I will sign off with this little statement of mine, and that is about, God, 20 years ago now, uh, I'd come out of the Latin Mass on a Sunday in Pasadena, California, and I was standing there with my friend Bill Beersack, who's my brother's age, he's seven years older than I am, mm-hmm. he's the author of the Father Baptist series and so forth. But Bill and I are standing there, we're, you know, suits, could just come out of Mass, and Bill has lived in that part of the world since he was a boy. And it was an old section of Colorado Boulevard. So I said, Bill, if we were here, say, 1960, what would it have looked like? What, what, what would the men have been wearing? And he says, well, they've been pretty much, it's a Sunday, they've been pretty much dressed the way you and I are. And the girls, the women who had hats and gloves and so on and dresses. I said, well, what would the little kids have been wearing? And he looks at me and says, Jeans and T-shirts, pretty much what you see everybody wearing, and that's when it hit me. Mm-hmm. There aren't any more grown-ups. We live in nursery world. We're all little ones who need mommy and daddy to take care of us. But mommy and daddy went bye-bye. Peter Pan disease. Oh yeah, and it, it hits us from the very top, all the way down to me. Just to liven up the ending a little bit. (laughs) Till next time, Charles. (laughs) 
<laughs> All right. God bless you all, man. Take care. Good. Downtown.